It has been observed today that it's hard to find folks who fear the Creator and understand that He is pure, holy, and He is the righteous judge. I, I, would, I, would observe, I would agree with that observation that it's hard to find folks who really believe that. In fact, despite the, count, the content dedicated to that topic in the Bible, page upon page on the holy and uh, holiness of God and his righteousness and his and him being the judge the amount of content dedicated to that in the bible sadly many religious assemblies will say little of it they will say little of it today even though it's such a primary focus in the bible billy graham once said among those christians to whom hell means little calvary means less It's been said that many people complain that belief in a God of judgment will lead to more, to a more brutal society. Belief in a God of judgment will lead to a more brutal society, they say. I recently read about a Nobel Prize winning Polish poet who wrote the remarkable essay, The Discreet Charms of Nihilism. And he remembered Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the people because the promise of an afterlife. Remember, Marx believed this led the poor and working class to put up with unjust social conditions. But the poet went on to say this, and now we are witnessing a transformation A true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness, nothingness after death, the huge solace of thinking about our betrayals, our greed, our cowardice, murders, are not going to be judged. But all religions recognize that our deeds are imperishable, he said. You see, he had personally been born in both, he had both, excuse me, he had both, he had personally seen both Nazism and communism, and that a loss of belief in a God of judgment can lead to brutality. If we are free to shape life and morals any way we choose without ultimate accountability, of course it can lead to violence. And so is the doctrine of God's final judgment, we should ask. Is it necessary? Is the doctrine of God's justice and his just wrath against sin, is it necessary? Is it loving? Is it important for undergirding human practices of love and peacemaking? What do you know about the doctrine of hell? How open are you to the idea that real love pursues justice? Just imagine a supreme and most holy being, omnipotent, an omniscient, never really putting an end to, to wickedness and injustice. How would you feel if, if everyone around you took your griefs and your sufferings for granted? Would you feel loved? How would you be perceived as a, as a governor yourself if you did not put, strive to put an end to injustices? 
You know, today, friends, we could live in the belief that perhaps there's no God and that even if there is, he's not going to do anything that's not according to our liking and our feelings. And and we could have that limited perspective, also by our limited perspective of him. I would argue that that's a step of faith, but that too is a step of faith that one chooses. We could view God as one who only deals with those we think are the real sinners and never take time to see ourselves before him. Well, I would say that's a step of faith too. Or we can see there is plenty of evidence that reveals that our God is the standard and that he has authority and he has the character to do what is just because he is loving. In this belief, we would understand that everyone's personal sin must be taken seriously because it is against God Almighty. And that would drive us to God's solution and his offer of hope to us all in Jesus Christ. Let's take our Bibles and look at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Mark wants us to repent and believe in Christ alone for salvation. If you don't have a Bible, there's a, a Bible provided for you there in the pew. It's on page 897 if you want to use the pew Bible this morning. Mark wants the reader to put their trust in Jesus. He wants us to get that the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ and his glory. And that everything has changed since he first appeared in the flesh. Jesus has come to be everything that Adam, Israel, and all of us are not. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the, the true and greater image bearer. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is, is the true and rightful heir. The promises belong to him and they are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He is, as the Old Testament predicted, God come to us in true humanity to save many from judgment and sin by taking it on himself in their place. And in our current context in chapter 9, he's been teaching the disciples. You can go back even to chapter 8 where he's already called them to deny themselves, take up the cross and follow him. He's been showing them more and more about who he is. And in our context, he promises a reward to outsiders who show Christians a, a bare minimum of goodwill in verse 41. That's where we left off last week. And now he turns the other direction. He threatens Christians or those who take on the name of Christ with dire judgment if they cause a little one who believes in him to slip. So let's look now at Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Hear God's word. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where, there are, where, there, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt loses, should lose its flavor, how can you season? season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. Amen. 
the overall thrust of the passage communicates, stop sinning or else you will suffer the consequences. Stop sinning or you'll suffer the consequences. Here's the central point if you're taking notes. It's, it's, I think it's simple and plain for us this morning. Jesus was serious about sin. Therefore, we should be too. Jesus was serious about sin. Therefore, we should be too. Number one, be sober about doing spiritual harm to others. Be sober about doing spiritual harm to others. Focusing in this point on number on verse 42 is where I'm going to focus this point. Again, note the context. If you take the text out of context, all you're left with is a con. All right. Note the context of the previous verse. Jesus taught we are to welcome those who side with him and authenticate their service to Jesus, no matter how small it seems. Y'all remember that from last week. Now we see if they are not welcomed, but rejected and ignored. This can cause them to stumble in their discipleship. Derailing the faith of those with little worldly importance, these little ones, through an inconsiderate, egotistical use of power, looking back at the context, calls for the most severe punishment. Jesus is concerned about doing spiritual harm to others. I think we can all see that. You can note that the term there, the verb, cause, calls them to fall away. It means to entrap. The term scandalizo can mean to cause someone to stumble. The phrase refers to anything that would compromise the faith of another person. It does remind you of Paul's same argumentation in 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, how some were using Christian liberty to justify going into a pagan ceremony just so they could have some of the food. Remember how Paul warned those who were prideful, same as this context, pride present, how their pride hurt hurt other weak consciences. They were not weak because they were being restrictive about about liberties. That's not what a weak person is. No, a weak conscience is one that is unable to make appropriate moral judgments because of the lack of proper edification. I believe the little ones here are similar to those of 1 Corinthians. They are easily either tempted to backslide or even worse, led astray from Christ through bad examples by the prideful among them. Jesus is warning the disciples about their obnoxiousness here. And if, uh, and if you and I, friends, are sloppy Christians, not controlled by the Spirit, that's what means being filled with the Holy Spirit, means to be controlled by the Spirit, then we, are too, we too are being, being put on a warning notice here by Jesus. If we're being sloppy Christians, you're on notice. Me and you both. You're on notice this morning. Matthew, Matthew Henry nailed it here. He said, Whosoever shall grieve any true Christians, though they be of the weakest, shall oppose their entrance into the ways of God or discourage and obstruct their progress in those ways, shall either restrain them from doing good or draw them in to commit sin. End quote. It's interesting here that God shows more concern for the little fragile ones here of fragile faith than the great egos present in the disciples, which calls them to lord over these little ones in the faith and ignore them 
Friends, this passage is a straight rebuke to self-importance, isn't it? It's a concern for others present here. The kingdom is so important that no one should do anything to stop a disciple from entering it or doing anything that causes them to sink in, uh, to think sin is somehow okay. Note how it's better to be drowned in the sea, the great millstone thrown around your neck, those things were massive, with no chance of escape than to face the judgment that God will dish out to those who lead others to sin and away from Christ. The disciples need to accept that being a representative of Jesus carries with it immense responsibility, doesn't it? To be a representative, to here's my card, I'm a, I'm a Christian, is an immense responsibility. It's not a political game. And by the way, being political to try to be Christian doesn't work today anymore anyway. We are, friends, by the majority culture, we looked at as the bad guys now because of our faith. That's a growing sentiment in the United States of America. It's not about that. Being a Christian is a call to follow Christ in obedience and to image him. It comes with great reward for faithful teaching and grave penalties for leading others astray. Why does Pastor Garrett and the elders always talk about what it means to be a faithful member? Because we, we understand to be connected closely, being a faithful witness of Christ. If anyone should, should tremble, it's the people who claim to be representatives of Jesus. So what kind of Christian are you? Are you careful with your words and your actions for Jesus' sake on every platform, on every scenario? Yeah, we have to be sober-minded. Did you not hear Keith read Ephesians 5 this morning? D does your walk... And your words show humility or pride. Would people say you are self-righteous and off-putting? Or would they say you are humble and true? Do you ever stop and see ways you may be leading those in the faith who are impressionable? Who are the impressionable ones in your, in your way right now that you are accountable for? Adults or children? You know, Deb, Deb's funeral was yesterday and she was truly a commendable sister. There's so many stories about her that I find out later after she's gone. I had a bunch myself I could tell you about her. Uh, just quiet things she did all the time. And she understood that being a member of a church, you know, where she could actually be accountable to live out the one another commands of the Bible in a real way, was a non-negotiable for, for one who professed faith in Jesus. And she cared about her testimony and she mourned over her own sins. She never, she never claimed to be some perfect saint. If you knew Debs, you know she would tell you honestly about her sin. She served people in ways without drawing attention to it. She promoted unity of the church. She gave herself to be shepherded. She loved worshiping with the saints. You know, there aren't many who do this. I'm not trying to say you're bad if you don't. But one of the things, I, joys I got out of watch from this viewpoint was seeing Deb would put sometimes both hands in the air when she would sing. She reveled in the grace of God. And yeah, she was human. She struggled with being around people at times. She, she fought, though, to give herself in love. And Deb knew how critical it was to prioritize the local church for her own good, but also to do good to others. We don't just come to church to get something. We also come to give and encourage each other. When we stand and hear each other sing, 
There's mutual encouragement going on. When we stop and pray for each other after service, that's a time to serve. When we help someone with, with their children in, in children's ministry, help them to the car, help them tote things, that we're showing care for one another. But not just here on Sundays, but when we leave as well. Some of her dying words were about wishing she had done more for Jesus. And she, like us all, will one day wish we had done more to be more helpful for the cause of Christ and never to be a hindrance. Her passing made me think about, am I being helpful or where am I being unhelpful perhaps in someone's walk or, or their, their faith? The way believers treat others in the family of God is a serious thing and God wants us to have peace with one another. You can see that in verse 50. And the disciples did not get along with each other as we see in context, nor did they get along with other believers, as you can see. They forgot that their behavior in pride hurts others. They hurts impressionable ones. And they forgot what we know in, Jesus, in John 13, the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. To lead someone astray from Christ is to face serious consequences. If we do not rid ourselves of the sin of pride that, that took out, that took down Satan and Adam, we'll be a stumbling block to others and God will hold us accountable. I think you can see that in the text. Friends, let us treat this passage as an awakening, a, a Scrooge-like awakening. You know when Scrooge wakes up? You know, where we see that we've been given another chance to turn from any example or words that we know are unfaithful and live for Jesus. We've been given this text to awaken us to another day to turn from that, to repent, confess it to the Lord, and go out and live renewed lives. All the ways we are being sloppy in our church life, devotional life, evangelism, participation in the things of the world, let's awaken. Wake up, sleeper, as we heard this morning. All this to say... Be sober about doing spiritual harms, harm to others. That's point number one. Jesus was serious about sin. We should be too. Number two, be serious about doing yourself spiritual harm. Be serious about doing yourself spiritual harm. And now I'm going to focus on 43 through 48. That very heavy section there in the middle between the we start and we'll finish. The catchword calls to fall in, in above now in verses 43 through 48 is applied to self. Don't let it, don't call somebody else to, to stumble and fall. Hey, it's like, Hey, knuckleheads, don't do it to yourself either. This is, that's the spirit of, that's the, that's the sense of what we're going through now in these next few verses. First Corinthians 10, 12, whoever thinks he stand must be careful not to fall. Causing oneself to stumble is as serious as causing a, a little one to stumble and requires radical measures. And so Jesus brings them up here. The main point of these verses is that it's so important to enter into life, i.e. eternal life, eschatological life. And radical means must be taken to remove what can prevent it, namely sin. So he launches into those three powerful hyperboles to warn us of sin's danger to others as well as ourselves. We know these are exaggerations used by Jesus to make a point, not to be taken physical, physically, literally, because the Bible forbids uh, bodily mutilation. OK, 
Okay, just want to be clear on that. We know that's not what Jesus is talking about. The language is used to, to help us to be sober-minded here, serious-minded. There's uh, the parallel sayings about hand, the foot, and the eye are linked together, reminding us about the cause to stumble, the cause to fall. And he, he reminds us, it is better, it is better, it is better. The eyes, the hands, the feet, they're inclusive of what we see, what we do, and where we go. That's how you can think about it. What we see, what we do, and where we go. These are the members, but they're also instruments that we employ to gratify the lust that emerges from within. Anybody else grow up here singing that little song, Oh, Be Careful Little Eyes, What You See? Yeah, those children. They stole that from Jesus. These are the members, again, the instruments that we employ to gratify that lust within us. And what Jesus is telling you to do is similar to what he's already said. You know what? He's already said this in a different way. He said, deny yourself, didn't he? Deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. He calls for a ruthless moral self-denial, not mutilation, mortification. It's like the great Puritan John Owen, who said it so well. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I have this, I have this picture somewhere in my basement under stuff of uh, Rambo with his big knife. And I always thought that would be a good slogan to put over that poster. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We have to be aggressive. We have to be thoughtful. We have to prepare for spiritual battle every day. I like to wake up on Monday and think, I've done my battle. Sunday's over, Lord. I can just put down arms. It never works out for me that way. Monday is, is and I know, I'm not trying to put anybody in anxiety right now, but Monday is just around the corner. Some of you are already singing the song, Monday, Monday. Uh, you know, you're already thinking about that. But what you think be thinking about is warfare. Be ready. Fill up on God. Fill up on his word. And your heart would be helped. Your life would be helped. It's better to lose out sin, on sin's pleasures than to let him prevent you from entering eternal life. Uh, to let, it, let sin prevent you from entering eternal life in God's kingdom. It's better to know the denial of self than being denied by God. And as Jesus says here, suffer hell, which is eternal. You know, Jesus said more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. The word translated hell, Gehenna, is the Greek form of the Hebrew word, Gehenam, Valley of Hinnom. This valley lies on the southern side of the city of Jerusalem and was used as the city's garbage dump. Many of you know this. It was the place where human excrement and rubbish, including animal carcasses, were disposed and burned. In the most apostate of Old Testament times, it was the site of human sacrifice to the pagan god Moloch. In verse 48, where the worm does not die. Some of your translations have it in verse 46. The CSB makes a footnote about that. Uh, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched is an allusion to Isaiah 66, 24, which speaks of the eternal punishment of those who, re who have rebelled against God. Because of that valley's sordid history, it became associated in light of Isaiah 66, 24, with Jewish thought 
on hell, the place of final punishment. And the New Testament reveals that the second, at the second coming of Christ and the final resurrection, the souls of the ungodly in Hades, the place of suffering, and the unrepentant sinners present will be reunited with their resurrected bodies. The, de- the souls of the ungodly will be reunited with their resurrect- resurrected bodies and thrown into hell. Will it be total suffering? So, yes, the Bible teaches you're either raised unto everlasting life and glory or unto eternal destruction. So those who refuse God's gracious offer of forgiveness in Christ will suffer eternal conscious punishment in hell, condition of torment cut off from the blessed presence of God. Hell is the reality of God's justice and wrath, and it reflects the dignity of the human. Each person must be held accountable for the decisions made they make. So hell is not something that humans create for themselves on this earth. It's not even close. I hear today a lot of preaching of God that's mostly a caricature of God. God loves you just the way you are. God's love for you is unconditional. That's sloppy. I I think many are accustomed to thinking today, of course God loves me. Why wouldn't he? Right? Awesome. It's kind of the attitude. I'm wonderful. Of course he loves me. And I could never love a God who doesn't love me. I could never love a God who would want to harm anyone. This is pretty much the prevailing thinking of everyday American pagans who prefer a little g God just a few feet taller, just a few feet taller than they are, and then they're good. They've got him exactly how they want him. But God is, you know, we're complicated creatures. God is very complex and beyond our minds. And what we do know is revealed about him in his word And no wonder people, when that's the prevailing pagan thought, no wonder people ask, how could hell be seen as flowing from the love of God? But the answer should be plain when we see that God is actually loving and good. Because God loves holiness and justice and righteousness and truth and goodness. And you can keep going. Hell makes a distinction between righteousness and unrighteousness between justice and oppression, between gracious help and exploitation, between what God loves and what God hates, between submitting to his reign and rebelling against it. So friends, do not miss the point about Christ at the start. If God loves you just the way you are, there was no reason for Jesus to live and die in your place at Calvary's cross. When people say God loves you unconditionally, hang on, they're missing a condition. He loves unconditionally in Christ. You must repent and trust in Christ. That's the condition. You must come to Christ. Otherwise, you're still at enmity with God. The Bible reveals plainly that God doesn't love you just the way you are. He loves loves people despite who they are. And he shows them love every day and mercy every day. But also, there is the issue of justice. He's also opposed to sinners God loves his son. And he, out of love, invites us into that love found in Christ. Then and only then do you find yourself in the absolute security of God's love. 
That's the glad tiding of great joy is to be in Christ. So yes, I can tell you that God loves the world. He sent his one and only son to the world. But God being complex and holy is also wrathful and just against sinners. God's wrath is the execution of his justice because he is love. You know, there are parts of the world they couldn't imagine. They they long for justice. They ache for justice. Is is there going to be a day of justice because of the oppression they deal with day in and day out? You know, this is what individuals impassioned for social justice are doing. They're executing wrath against sex trafficking, including, you know, in seeking hell on earth retribution for traffickers because it's truly loving to be utterly against great injustice for the sake of one's neighbor, isn't it? Unfortunately for us, the greatest injustice ever perpetrated in this world was our rebellion against God. I mean, you, you come a long ways once you understand that. That the problems with all the injustices in the world start first and foremost with sin against God. I shared this yesterday. I'll share it again to paraphrase an author. There's no such thing as a minor sin because there's no such thing as a minor God. God is love, but he's also just. His justice is loving. God is holy. He's also love. And so his love is holy. So let me invite you to take a good look at Calvary's cross this morning. It was on that cross that the eternal begotten son of God, who put on full humanity, true humanity, offered himself in his perfect life of righteousness. And in him was no sin. Not only did he not have sin externally, there was none within him. He went to Calvary's cross as the spotless lamb foreshadowed in the Old Testament. But in reality is the one, the real and true substitute at the cross. So at the cross... God judged Jesus in the place of any and all who repent and trust in him alone. God laid our sin on him, our shame on him, and God's wrath was given to him. Who else could endure successfully God's wrath, absorb it, pay for it in full, and be raised on the third day except God himself? So as the, as the, as the son of man, he fulfilled all righteousness that you and I never did. And as the son of God, he endured the justice you and I could not endure outside of eternity in hell. And he endured that in all for, in love for sinners. Some of you need to hear today that God loves you and he's willing to forgive you. Will you not come to Christ? Will you not repent and trust in Jesus? Say, God, I'm a sinner. I need your son. Change my life. If you do that, you put your trust in him, he will cleanse you and forgive you your sins. He'll give you a comfort and assurance like you've never known. You're looking for security this morning? Don't look for it in this world. Look to Christ. Why should we, friends, take a serious mindset about what we watch and what we touch and what we walk into? Because God is just and holy. Jesus was serious about sin. Because he's God. God's true people are those who are fighting against sin. Not allowing it to take deep root and rule over them. God's true people are those who are fighting against sin. They're taking the drastic measures. If they have to get rid of a smart device to get off pornography, they do it. If they have to get uh, the cable out of their house so they can get better, ha- have their minds focused better on holy things, they do it. They do what's necessary so they can wa- so they can grow in holiness and not grow in sin. 
If they need to flee a certain party, they do it. If they don't need to sit in a lone, a parked car while they're dating, they strive to do it. They repent and get up and fight. They take the measures that are necessary. Because, friends, those who are found unrepentant, you're in serious danger. So, friend, where is sin killing you? Where is sin killing your joy and your peace? We wonder why your walk is just miserable and limping and dry all the time. Well, friends, what are you holding on to at the same time while trying to hold on to Jesus? He said, and cut that out. You know good and well the Holy Spirit's knocking on that little heart of yours saying, until son or till daughter, you take this out of your life. You're going to continue to grieve the Holy Spirit and I'm going to continue to convict you. You're never going to know peace until you deal with it. Are you ready to take the measures that are necessary? Where do you need to make the sacrifices that are necessary to fill up on the things of God so you can be fully available and more fruitful as a Christian? Where do you need to wake up about holiness? Friends, this wakes me up looking at this text. All this to say, be serious about doing yourself spiritual harm. Number three. Remember, Jesus was serious about sin. We should be too. Number three. Be sure to be, be sure to be preserving and growing. Be sure to be preserving and growing. Jesus concludes his teaching in this section with two mysterious sayings here, a little, you know, enigmatic sayings about salt. Remember, salt is a preservative. So thus he says, all will be salted with fire in a manner consistent with a relationship to Christ. For unbelievers, it will be the perpetual fires of final judgment in hell. And this interpretation fits other sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus has asked the disciples to take up the cross in verse 34, back in chapter 8. He promises James and John that they will drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism in chapter 10. He promises all the disciples that they will have rewards with persecutions in chapter 10. If they endure to the end, chapter 13. The suffering they undergo will not destroy them, but will purify them for God. So for the disciple, it will be the preserving and refining fires of trials and suffering that mark the road to true greatness. And this, is, this particular saying, by the way, is only found in Mark's gospel, uniquely the way he's phrased it here. So it must have had special significance for Jesus but unique also, as one of the apostles who helped Mark in putting this together, was Peter. Jesus says, if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? If salt fails to salt food, it is not salt and it's worthless. And the same applies to disciples. If they do not manifest the distinctive characteristics that Jesus requires, they're not real disciples, they're worthless when Jesus says, have salt among yourselves and be at peace uh, with one another, he's calling them to be humble and avoid stumbling or causing others to stumble. Don't fuss and fight over positions and status, people, he says. Be a reflection of the God-given peace you've received from Jesus. Pull for your brothers and sisters in Christ, not against them. So all who follow Jesus as Lord are on the same team. So here's the path to greatness that really matters in the eyes of our Savior. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson was so helpful here in clarifying the intent of the word here. He says, unless we maintain the purity of our own lives, plucking, cutting off, and are purified by the flames of testing, 
and remain faithful to Christ, our lives will have no preserving influence on this corrupt world, end quote. Self-centered disciples are like flavorless salt. Self-centered disciples are like flavorless, flavorless salt. Now, you know, there's, I know there's probably some foodies in the room this morning. Some of you, though, may love bland foods. No, there's no judgment here. But once you've had a regular encounter with spices and flavor, it's hard to go back. You know what I mean? It's just bland. Have we lost our, our flavorfulness as believers? Are we losing that? Are we like that food that's like, eh? Easily to forget, easy to move on from. Church members, when we are not under the control of the Spirit, that's what we're like, flavorless salt. We're like that meal served at the public school. Some of us grew up in public school. You remember those trays? They, they, you know, it's like prison. They throw it on the, I've never been to prison, by the way. But, you know, they scoop it on the plate. And you just, you kind of like, what is this? They, they tell you the food like, that's that? I mean, is that how we want to be perceived as believers? And be, that, that, what, was, what was their Christian life like? Eh, like school luncheon. No. Of course not. But when we are not under the control of the Spirit, there needs to be that little ting in our brain like, oh, that's what I'm like. I'm about as exciting and flavorful and useful as flavorless salt. It's a bland meal. Friends, are you going long seasons without flavor? Take, take good inventory. Are you filling up, friends, are, are you filling up on the spices of the words so that you can have flavor to engage with others? You can't do that being dominated, though, on this world. And Jesus is driving that home. You can't have flavor and be full with the flavor of the Spirit if you're dominated with sin in, in this world. Have you lost the sharpness which sets you apart from your environment, from those around you? You know, like that like, like, like meal, we have the illustration for a reason, Right? You, 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 we've all had, you know, this standard of, uh, pick your, let's just pick something simple, like pasta. Eh, it was okay. And then you have that one over there. Whoa. I mean, explosion, right? Have you lost that sharpness that sets you apart as a Christian? Jesus on his way to Jerusalem is a sacrifice salted with fire. And so we're to have salt in ourselves and be at peace with one another. Stop squabbling about who's the greatest. That debate is over. Jesus is the greatest. There's no worry. They think they're better than me. Well, probably they are. But nobody's better than Jesus. And God has placed me in him. I'm united to Christ. Human quests for greatness and status simply divide human beings, doesn't it? Don't we live in an age of just the social binary all the time? So another way for people to virtue signal and feel more righteous about themselves. And Christians, we don't need to do that. Our greatness, our righteousness is in Jesus Christ alone. 
So you're here today and you're not a Christian. I, I just want to assume, I assume you're a better person than me. But nobody's better than Jesus. And I'm holding on to him. Christ brings peace to relationships. All this to be saying, be sure to be preserving and growing. Let me conclude. Today, there are, there's plenty of evidence that reveals our God is the standard and that he has authority and the character to do what is just because he is loving. So do you understand that everyone's personal sin must be taken seriously because it's against God? And are you being driven to God's solution and offer of hope in Christ? I pray that you are. And if you want to talk to me more about that, I'll be available after the service. Love to talk to you more about Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Amen. Oh Lord, turn us from our unsalty ways. Fill us with flavor and the aroma of Christ. We want to cast down our idols and our sins those areas that we keep so guarded and turn them all over to you. Yield to you, Lord. Our life is so short. God, make us sharp for your sake and for your glory. And Lord, when we do see success, remind us it is not from us. It is only by your grace. God, help us to live in light of the seriousness of sin and hell, knowing that you poured out justice on Christ and mercy on us who believed. Remind us, Lord, to walk in light of your holiness. Help us now as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.